Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm going through a breakup with my long-term partner and it hurts so much. Any advice? Hey, Steph, how do you stop self-sabotage? I know I do it, yet I still can't break the cycle. How does ADHD affect friendships and relationships? Sometimes it feels consuming. Welcome back to another episode on the What Is Eating You podcast. And today I'm going to address what is eating you. Now, you are the people on my Instagram who have sent a message through my Psychology Sunday box. So every Sunday on my stories, I put a little box called Psychology Sunday and you ask your questions. Now, rather than answer on stories, because there is a limit to how much I can provide, I thought I would give you really detailed answers in a weekly episode on the podcast. So let's get straight into it. Now, obviously people have submitted this. They know it's confidential. They know it is private. So there'll be no identifying information and there has been consent to share this. Let's start with the first one. Going through a breakup with my long-term partner and it hurts so much. Any advice? Firstly, so sorry to hear that you're going through a breakup, especially with a long-term partner. I think the length of a relationship can really impact how challenging it is because there's so much more invested. You think I've been with this person for so long. Maybe things can work out. Why didn't it work out? And then there's a layer of Am I a failure on top of that? So I feel for you and I hope that you are okay. However, it takes courage to go through a breakup. It takes a lot, a lot of courage because it's easy to just stay in a relationship sometimes. Relationships can be comfortable. They are not always bad. And I think the most hardest relationships to end are the ones that they're not necessarily bad, but you just know deep down that they're not right or they're not the right fit or it's not in the right season. So let's start with why do breakups cause such intense emotional pain? Now, it is one of the most emotionally challenging events in life. Regardless of the circumstances as to why you broke up, whether it was anticipated or not, 
The aftermath can profoundly impact an individual's emotional well-being. The end of the relationship not only signifies the disillusion of a partnership, but also entails a loss of shared dreams and commitments, and it intensifies that emotional toll. So even when a relationship becomes unsustainable, the breakup process triggers a cascade of distressing emotions, such as disappointment, stress, grief, self-doubt. The initial stages of a romantic relationship are characterized by excitement and you share dreams and you share a future, but the failure of a relationship can shatter these optimistic beginnings and this can lead to a deep sense of loss or failure. So I encourage you, whoever wrote this in or someone who's going through a breakup, just to reflect on what is the breakup bringing up for you? What emotions is it presenting with? Are you feeling disappointed? Are you feeling grief? Are you feeling sadness? And just allow those feelings to be present. Not only that, but a breakup really propels us into unfamiliar territory and it disrupts every aspect of your life from your daily routines and responsibilities, whether you live together, whether you have children together, whether you had, you know, extended family and friends, the impact is pervasive and almost like a domino effect. Moreover, a breakup can challenge a sense of identity and it can create a really big sense of uncertainty about the future. Questions about life without a partner, the possibility of finding someone new, and the fear of ending up alone contribute to the overwhelming emotional turmoil. So I just want to validate that it is a really painful process. And while the journey may be challenging, it's really important to maintain a perspective that allows for personal growth, renewed hope, and the possibility of moving through it with eventually optimism. So why does it hurt so much? It really does have a severe pain. And the reason is the brain. The brain goes through a series of complex changes that can exacerbate the emotional pain. And these neurobiological processes share similarities with addiction. Now, I believe it is harder to go through a breakup in this day and age because We can't escape the people we are dating. We see them on social media. We see them in our text messages, WhatsApp, our photos, our albums. Whereas back in the olden days, I think it was easier to get over someone because there wasn't all this extra stuff we had to deal with, you know, all deleting the photos, taking down the post, changing your Facebook status. Oh, is she still with that person, you know, on social media? So The reason it hurts is the reward activation system in the brain. So in the early stages of a romantic relationship, the brain's reward system is highly activated. Now, this system involves the release of neurotransmitters such as dopamine, which is our pleasure and our excitement. Shared moments, affection and positive experiences with a partner trigger the release of dopamine and feel-good chemicals. This is why it's so hard to break up because you are going through withdrawal. Your brain is not getting that dopamine. And this is why so many people fall back to the drunk text, the, I'll just check his Snapchat. I'm just going to look at his Instagram and see where he's at because they need to scratch that itch. They're not letting themselves go through the withdrawal cold turkey. And every time you scratch that itch, you are starting back from square one. 
So my first rule in overcoming a breakup is no contact where you can help it. No contact for at least six months. That's the only way to really, really know if someone has changed, if they are different, if you are different. But if you keep seeing them, if you keep talking to them, you're never going to grow and develop as a person as much as you can without this contact. And people will come at me and say, oh no, but I'm so amicable with my ex and we decided to stay friends. I don't believe it. I don't think you can be friends with an ex. Whereas maybe you can, but I just don't understand why. If it didn't work out as a romantic relationship, what is the point of staying friends? That's just my personal opinion. I could be wrong, so feel free to tell me if I am wrong about this. But The other reason that the brain gets affected is dependency on a partner. So over time, the brain forms neural pathways linking the partner to feelings of pleasure and reward. This can create a dependency on the partner for emotional well-being, similar to the ways we become dependent on substances in addiction. So, you know, when you have alcohol or when you take drugs or even when you eat chocolate. You know how this is going to make you feel. The same can happen with relationships. Withdrawal symptoms. When a relationship ends, the sudden absence of a partner can lead to withdrawal-like symptoms. The brain experiences a decrease in dopamine levels, resulting in feelings of sadness, anxiety, and even physical discomfort. And this is similar to the withdrawal symptoms we see in drug addiction. So like I say, you have to go through the pain. This is why a lot of women will, they tend to feel more quickly than men, whereas men avoid more. And emotionally, it usually takes men a longer time to overcome relationships. Whereas with women, they really feel the pain initially, but they are able to move on emotionally faster. But this isn't for everyone. Everyone is different. They've also found in brain imaging studies that the brain regions involved in romantic love and attachment, such as the ventral tegmental area and caudate nucleus, are also implicated in addiction. These areas play a role in the formation of emotional bonds and the processing of rewards. So as you can see, there's many neurotransmitters involved in love and addiction, such as dopamine, oxytocin, and serotonin, and your brain can become conditioned to associate a partner with the pleasurable effects of these neurotransmitters, which reinforces the bond, making it really hard to overcome these relationships. So... It's not uncommon to experience cravings for your ex-partner. It's not uncommon to think about all the good times instead of the bad times. Your brain is just wanting to survive, not to thrive. So it's just looking for that short-term fix to make you feel better. So thoughts and memories of the partner can become obsessive and this can lead to difficulty moving on. So understanding the neural processes during a breakup through the lens of addiction can help us explain the emotional intensity and why it hurts so much, but this can also help you move forward. I remember when I went through a breakup, I said to my sister, "Ah, it just hurts so much. I just feel this awful pain. And she said, Steph, I know you're not going to believe me right now, but I promise, I promise there will come a day where it doesn't hurt anymore. There will be a day where there is light at the end of the tunnel and you've just got to wait it out. And I was like, no, it's never going to come. But lo and behold, 
I think it was, I don't know, a few months later or six months, yeah, I said to my sister, this is the day. The day is here. It finally came. She's like, what day? What did I tell you? So essentially the answer is simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy because people don't want to feel bad feelings. Growing up, we're taught to, you know, self-soothe with food. We're taught to not cry. We're taught to push our emotions down. So unless you really allow yourself to feel it, it's going to be hard to heal it. So the first thing is to accept it's going to hurt. But like my sister told me, I'm going to tell you, I promise there will be light at the end of the tunnel and there will be a day you won't feel this way, but you have to trust the process. The other thing that really helped me was remembering the reasons we broke up and rewiring my brain. So I had a list on my phone of all the reasons we broke up and any time I had doubts, I was like, I miss them. I would read this list to remind my brain of the reasons we broke up rather than all the things I missed about the person. So remember, feel it to heal it. Here is not what to do. Do not contact them. Do not get drunk. Don't go out and party to the extreme. Don't stalk their social media. Don't pretend you're amicable and friends when secretly there's still feelings there. If you really, really care about yourself and the other person, and if you really want to do the work, I'm sorry, but you have to go cold turkey. And I know that may be hard to hear, but I promise if you are going to get back together, if you are going to sleep together, you're just making things worse. And you've got to ask yourself, if we were meant to be together, we wouldn't have broken up. So, that's my advice on the breakup. There's a really good book called Uncoupling. It's an audio book, but I would encourage you to journal, talk about it with friends, but also talk about it in a way that promotes healing and optimism. You don't just want to go and talk about the same thing in a circle and in a circle. Research shows that doesn't resolve anything, but more like, yeah, you know what? It really hurts, but I'm in a lot of pain, however, and talk about the way you're moving through it. Okay, next question. ADHD. How does ADHD affect friendships and relationships? Sometimes it feels consuming. So for those who don't know, ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is a neurodevelopmental disorder that affects your executive functioning. So this is the part of your brain, the CEO in your frontal lobe that is responsible for your impulse control, attention, memory, focus, getting things done. Why? Because people with ADHD have lower levels of access to dopamine and this can affect them getting started on tasks and also norepinephrine. That's the initiation of tasks. Dopamine is feeling good about things. So it can impact friendships because of the challenges people with ADHD have with attention, impulse control. Here are some of the ways. So when we talk about focus and attention, people with ADHD may struggle to maintain attention during conversations or activities. Now, this can make it hard for them to fully engage in interactions and other people can feel unheard or unimportant. Now, I've had a lot of friends with ADHD. I have a lot of friends and the conversation may be changed. And I do this. I don't have ADHD, but I can do this as well. So I'm super mindful of when it happens, but I'm also super mindful that 
when I speak to friends with ADHD, if they do go off on a tangent or they zone out, I know it's not about me. I know it's about them and it's their neuro spicy brain where it's happening. So I know not to internalize that. I'm not sure if the person who wrote this has ADHD or they have ADHD friendships, but either way, I think if you can give some empathy and compassion to your friends with ADHD, cut them some slack, they're doing their best, but also you can just let them know that, look, I know you've got ADHD, but when you ask me a question and you kind of look the other way, I feel unheard or unimportant and you can work it out, but there's no reason to get upset, even though it's annoying It's not like they're doing it on purpose. It's their brain trying to block out a million things. They really want to hear what you're saying. So let's be a little bit forgiving with that. Two, impulsivity. Now, impulsivity is a common trait in ADHD, especially if you have the impulsive, hyperactive subtype. There's three different types. There's inattentive, impulsive, hyperactive, and then a combined subtype. Now, this may manifest as interrupting others, making hasty decisions or comments, speaking without considering the consequences, and this can lead to misunderstandings and strain relationships because, you know, not everything needs to be said. Not everything needs to be pointed out. So this can offend some people. If someone says something or interrupts or makes a hasty comment, this can definitely affect relationships. So just being mindful that, If your ADHD friend or partner does say something a bit, you know, offensive or say something that's a bit unfiltered, just say it's not them, it's their ADHD. But you can also point it out and just let them know in a caring and compassionate way to say, hey, look, I know it's not you. I know it's the ADHD. But when you point out, I don't know, that I look a certain way without makeup or whatever, That actually hurts my feelings. So if you think that, try not to say it. Um, The third reason is time management issues. People with ADHD have difficulties with time management and organization. So this can lead to being late, forgetting your birthday, forgetting all the important dates. They could be unpredictable. And this can really frustrate friends or partners because partners can go to you know extreme lengths to book a restaurant on time or organize something special and all you got to do is is be on time so whilst this is challenging if you are the non ADHDer you could perhaps give them a fake time <laughs> tell them it's half an hour you know earlier than it actually is to give them that buffer to get there on time or if you can work around the time maybe you pick them up and you get there a little bit earlier. Or if they are running late, just take a deep breath and just remember they're trying their best. It is not the end of the world. And they're usually criticizing themselves anyway. So you don't need to criticize them further because you don't know what it took them to actually get through the door or leave their house. They might've had crippling anxiety. They might've been stressed out about what they were wearing, but I know, I know that this can be taxing for other people, but I think it's just important to kind of, you know, balance this and just understand that different friendships and relationships may serve different needs. And if it is a partner and whether it's diagnosed, whether it's not, whether they're medicated, see if you can help them along that journey. Another reason that ADHD may affect friendships or relationships is emotional sensitivity. 
So emotional dysregulation is an aspect of ADHD, which means they can experience intense emotions and have difficulty managing reactions. See, many people can notice when they're angry or when they're frustrated or when they're tired and kind of nip it in the bud. But this can impact the emotional tone of relationships. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As people with ADHD may find it challenging to navigate emotional fluctuations or regulate their emotions. And this can lead into rejection sensitivity, but this is another area that can affect friendships and relationships because people with ADHD may experience heightened rejection sensitivity, interpreting neutral or ambiguous cues as signs of rejection. So for example, if their partner said, you know, I don't want to make love tonight, I'm really tired, this can make them think, oh, they're not interested in me anymore, you know, I'm not attractive, I'm being rejected, which can lead to anxiety and it can lead to difficulty trusting others. And the last two to three reasons is forgetfulness. So as mentioned earlier, similar to uh, time management is people with ADHD can result in missed social engagements. Like if they are forgetful, they might not complete tasks, they might neglect commitments, and this can cause frustration and strain. Hyperfocus. So we know that while ADHD is often associated with difficulty with attention, people with ADHD can have this incredible hyperfocus, which is intense concentration on a specific task or interest. Now, this might lead to unintentional neglect of other aspects of life, including relationships. They may become so fixated on this specific progress that they completely forget that they've got a date booked in, which can lead to communication challenges. People with ADHD have trouble expressing their thoughts in a concise manner. And that also comes with expressing ideas to friends and partners. So they might find that their partners or friends have difficulty following the flow of the conversation and friends and partners might get annoyed with this. They might see the communication as scattered or disorganized. So I think Despite these challenges, it's really important to recognize that this isn't the person with ADHD trying to give you a hard time. They could be doing their best. It's up to you to also manage your responses, right? So I have friends who are, you know, never on time, 
or super disorganized or flaky. So I just don't let my life depend on it. So for example, if I know that my friend is usually always late, I will say, text me when you're leaving. I won't leave my house till they leave or I'll bring a book or I'll bring work to do. So I'm not wasting my time while I'm waiting. I can do other things that are productive. So it's not impeding on my time. But don't forget, people with ADHD bring unique strengths to relationships. They are incredibly creative, super spontaneous, and they have a genuine enthusiasm for life. So don't forget, there are many positives and make sure you express this to your friends with ADHD. But if they are struggling, make sure you have suggestions, you know, for therapy if they need it. So just remember, successful navigation of friendships and relationships with someone with ADHD involves open communication, understanding, empathy, and a collaborative approach to problem solving. Really good question. I like that one. Next question, why can anxiety be physical too? I had a serious rash because of my anxiety. I love this question because not a lot of people talk about the physical aspects of anxiety. Anxiety is not only a psychological experience of extreme worry, but it can also manifest physically. The mind and body are extremely interconnected and stress and anxiety can trigger a range of physiological responses. So here is why anxiety can have physical manifestations such as a rash. Number one, stress response. Anxiety activates the body's stress response, which we know as fight, flight, or freeze. Now, when this system is triggered, the body releases your stress hormones, including cortisol and adrenaline, and this prepares your body to respond to a perceived threat. During this process, because your body is working to fight, it's going to pump more blood around the body, which can make your heart beat faster. Your breathing goes shallower because it's trying to get more oxygen in. You shake because you have adrenaline. You get dizzy. You need to go to the toilet. So just remember all these physical manifestations of anxiety are actually trying to help you. They are your friends, not your foes. They are there to provide a function and a service. The thing is, sometimes we don't need that service because your brain doesn't know the difference between a real stressor, such as about to be hit by a car, touch wood, and a perceived stressor, such as an email from your boss. So just remember when you get these physical responses, say, ah, hello, friend. This is my anxiety trying to protect me, but I'm safe. I'm okay. There is no stressor. And I talk about completing the stress response in my burnout uh, short course as well. The second physical manifestation that can happen is because of immune system response. So when you have prolonged stress and anxiety, this can suppress your immune system, which means the body is more susceptible to various health issues, including skin conditions like rashes. The immune system's response may contribute to inflammation and other reactions in the skin. It's crazy how it is all linked. So if you start to manage your anxiety, if you start to manage your stress, you may also see a reduction in these physical symptoms. Whereas we're kind of taught just to put cream on it or just to medicate it. But are we just medicating the symptoms? Are we getting down to the cause? Which leads to number three, inflammation. 
Chronic stress can lead to inflammation in the body. In the context of anxiety, this inflammation may manifest in different ways, including skin reactions. Inflammatory processes can contribute to the development of exacerbation of skin conditions like rashes. Super interesting. Hormonal changes. Anxiety activates the autonomic nervous system. That's the next one I'm going to go into, but back to hormones. It can disrupt the balance of hormones in the body. Now, we know that hormones play a role in regulating various bodily functions, such as the skin. Imbalances may contribute to the development of skin issues. Nervous system activation. Anxiety activates the autonomic nervous system, as mentioned, which controls involuntary bodily functions, including skin responses. So this activation can lead to blood flow, sweating, and other skin-related conditions. So indirectly, anxiety can make you more sweaty, which then can affect, you know, rashes or skin or itching. Then we go into the itch-scratch cycle. Anxiety may also contribute to the itch-scratch cycle. Stress and anxiety can increase the perception of itchiness leading to scratching. Persistent scratching can then exacerbate skin issues and contribute to the development of rashes. And the final one is pre-existing skin conditions. So if you've got a pre-existing condition such as eczema or psoriasis, these can be flared up during times of stress or anxiety. So it's important to just monitor what exacerbates your anxiety, your stress, your skin conditions. Try to log your symptoms, log what works, log what doesn't. So it's essential to recognize the mind-body connection and understand that mental health and physical health is definitely intertwined. Just make sure you seek a healthcare professional to help you through this. But managing stress through relaxation, mindfulness, and other coping strategies can definitely help you reduce the manifestations of anxiety. Now, the final question, I really like this one, is how to celebrate your wins even though you feel it makes your friends jealous. Now, I definitely think in Australia, we have tall poppy syndrome, which basically means that we are scared to talk about ourselves. We're scared to share our wins. It's kind of seen as all bragging and it's not humble. This is why I love being overseas because it doesn't exist. Everyone is super motivating. We lift each other up. But I've noticed that we do live in a society. I'm not sure where you live when you're listening to this. Let me know if it's the same in your country. But in Australia, there is kind of this tall poppy syndrome where if you talk about your wins and your accomplishments, you're seen as gloating and it's quite negative. But celebrating your wins is an essential part of recognizing your achievements and fostering a positive mindset. You actually need it to foster a positive mindset. I met up with a friend today and uh, he's a bodybuilder and he's doing so incredible You know, he's like taking his meals everywhere. He's adhering to his training. It's up at 4 a.m. And he said to me, I I don't feel like I do enough. And I said, what? I said, you are living people's dream. Like they wish they had that discipline. They wish they had that focus. What would you need to feel like you're doing enough? Like what would you have to do to wake up feeling as though you were satisfied? And he couldn't answer me, right? And I think it's just about growing up in this culture. We're told that, 
oh, you can't be too soft on yourself. You know, you can't give yourself a pat on the back. And I think the real David Goggins movement, and I love his stuff and he's super motivating, but he's all about, you know, wake up and tell yourself that you're a piece of S and that's how you motivate yourself. So it's really important to celebrate your wins because this helps you feel better about yourself and helps you focus on the good rather than what you're not doing. And this leads to productivity, improving your mood, etc. Now, if you're concerned that sharing your success might make your friend jealous, here are some tips on it. Be mindful of your audience. Consider the context and the individuals with whom you're sharing your wins with. Are they actually jealous or is this in your mind? How do you know they are jealous? You can ask them. And jealousy isn't always a bad thing. I think there are definitely people in our life who admire us or who look up to us. And jealousy has always been a really interesting one. I've never actually had someone tell me that they're jealous of me, but I've had other people tell me that, oh, you know, maybe they're jealous of you. But I don't really see why. Like, yes, I have amazing things in my life and I'm so grateful, but I believe anyone can cultivate that, but it takes a lot of work and effort, but things do seem like they come to me very easily. I've had ex-partners say, oh yeah, everything works out for Stephanie Giorgio. And I was like, yeah, it does because Stephanie Giorgio works for the hard stuff. But if this is you, choose who you share your wins with. I have one particular friend and we have no limits. We're just like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to achieve this. I did this. I'm so proud. But would I share that with everyone? Probably not because some people may not be effective or useful to sharing your success. They might pick at your flaws. They might not support you with that. So especially if you know they're going through a tough time, you know, it might be more considerate to share your achievements privately or with someone else, but never dim your light to be polite. It might be about sharing your wins with a different social circle or with people who are on board with it. I think there's ways to share your wins as well. You can do it with humility and gratitude, but I'm a massive fan on celebrating your wins, no matter how big or small they are. You know, at the end of the week, we would always do something. I used to always go out for dinner or go, you know, have a drink. I really don't drink anymore, but we used to celebrate, you know, when I got my first apartment in the Gold Coast, me and my friend are like, yes, let's go celebrate. This is the friend I was telling you about. And we always message each other, what are you going to do to celebrate? And we really emphasize this journey. So I think if you do have people who pick apart your successes or maybe question it, emphasize the journey, share your insights into the journey, the challenges you overcame. It's like me. Many people might think, oh my gosh, like she's just doing so well and things are going good. But there are things that you don't know as well. There's been challenges along the way and when people do praise me, I appreciate it and I accept it. But if I feel comfortable, I will share the challenges as well because this can make your success more relatable and less likely to trigger jealousy as it emphasizes the effort and the perseverance involved. You know, an example of becoming a psychologist, so many people will say, oh, but you know, it's so hard getting into masters and I've heard it's so hard getting into this. And I'll say, yeah, it is. I didn't get into masters, I didn't get into honors, but I persevered. So 
there you go. People can just assume that it was easy for you. But unless you actually share the story, you know, people can have a different opinion of it. And the final thing is just celebrate their success too. I always say to my friends, like, hey, we're going out. We're going to celebrate, I don't know, the podcast reaching 50,000 downloads, you know, or we're going to celebrate the fact I, I found an apartment. We're going to celebrate the fact that I survived this week. I got out of bed before 7 a.m. Go me. What are you going to celebrate? It doesn't matter how big or small it is. We're both going to celebrate each other's journey. And yeah, just remember, be mindful who you share this with. But I I really, really loved this question. I thought it was very well thought out. I love these questions. I love Psychology Sunday. Oh, there is one more question. Is weighing yourself every day a bad thing? This depends on the context, but in most cases, I don't see how this is useful, especially in the area I work with of eating disorders, disordered eating. Weighing yourself can be very triggering for people. Now, the only time I'd say weighing yourself every day is if it's absolutely necessary for a particular goal. For example, if you are a bodybuilder and your coach is telling you to weigh yourself every day and you don't have that emotional connection to the scale, but Weighing yourself is a form of body checking. So body checking is a range of behaviors we do to try to scrutinize our body in some way. Now, in most cases, all cases, body checking reinforces dissatisfaction with your appearance and encourages dieting, which keeps the cycle of food jail going. So the next time you're tempted to weigh yourself, and it's really interesting this question came up because three people confessed to me that they weighed themselves around Christmas. And I'm like, why? Why? Why would you do that to yourself? So if you're tempted to weigh yourself, I encourage you to ask yourself, what am I hoping to find out by doing this? What am I hoping to find out by doing this? Is it useful? Is there another way to find this out? What can I do instead? The reality is most people who do weigh themselves don't have a good relationship with their body and food. So when they weigh themselves, their reaction is going to be skewed. It's going to be negative. They're going to assume that weight gain is fat gain, but your weight is meant to change. So I think it's really important to consider your weight as a range, not as a singular number. So if you have a bad relationship with the scale, I would probably suggest not to weigh yourself every day, let alone often, but Frequently avoiding as well can be problematic. And I talk about this in my book. People are either frequent checkers or frequent avoiders. So I think if this is you, you've really got to take a deep dive on, is this enhancing my life in any way? Why am I doing this? Can I not do it? And how does that make me feel? But such a really important thing to address. If you do struggle with your relationship with food and your body, check out Food Freedom. This is an amazing 12-week transformation that I run. It's only to a very small group of women. You do need to book a call with me to check if you are a suitable candidate. It's for people with bulimia, who struggle with binge eating, who struggle with body image, with dieting. They've gone their whole life struggling with this and they're finally ready to put it to bed. And if you have ADHD, this is perfect for you as well because it's ADHD friendly. Get in touch. The link is below. 
If you enjoyed these Q&As, please, please let me know. I actually have a podcast link that I'm going to start to use so you can put more detailed scenarios or questions or dilemmas in there. So keep an eye on that. I'll pop it in the show notes as well so you can submit it. It is confidential. It is anonymous. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating if you like this. And if you've got a podcast request, let me know. Have the best day and I'll see you on the next episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.